The nagging. Naturalist. It's the Nagging Naturalist podcast. Hey everyone, and welcome to the Nagging Naturalist podcast, a podcast that is all about wildlife. I'm your host, Kristen, a naturalist by trade, and I am once again joined by my partner, Barry. Hello, everyone. <laughs> if you want to know more about me and my background, you can check out my first episode, Who is the Nagging Naturalist? Our opinions are our own, and we do not speak for or on behalf of any organization, facility, or institute that's mentioned in this podcast. I'm going to apologize in advance if I sound a little drained in this podcast. I potentially have COVID. If not, I might have a bug or something in my system that has me feeling a little bit fatigued. So I do apologize in advance if I come across a little uh, more monotonous than usual. But hopefully Barry will be able to bring some levity to this if he wants to. I mean, it's your choice. I'm not going to make you do anything, Barry. It's Leviosa. Ew, you really... Ew, no, don't. No? No. All right. Are we redoing this? <laughs> no. <laughs> now you're stuck with that. You, <laughs> All right. you made a choice. And now you deal with the consequences. <laughs> uh, so this month we've been covering species found along the sandy seafloor of the Monterey Bay Continental Shelf. This week we'll be discussing the final species of the month, which is the Pacific Sand Dab. And Barry, I'm going to ask you to please, I know they can't see it, but do not dab during this podcast. I'll be embarrassed for both of us. Can you describe dabbing so I know how not to do it? You did it like 10 minutes ago. I know you know what dabbing is. Don't pretend ignorance for the listener. I won't play along with your charades. Okay. <laughs> All right. So breaking into the natural history. Taxonomy, we're in the animal kingdom, phylum chordata, or chordate, so these are the animals with backbones. The class is, uh, this is a mouthful, actinopterygii, where's the word? Right here, it's actinopterygii, actinopterygii, something like that. Basically, it's your ray-finned fishes as opposed to lobe-finned. So when you think of a fish, usually you're most likely thinking of a ray-finned fish. Ray-finned means that they have these small bony protrusions in their fins, like these little spines, where lobed fin fishes, it's all like flesh. There's nothing like hard or bony-like in their fins. So when you think of like clownfish, those are ray-finned fishes. Most of the fish that we eat are ray-finned fishes. So we're in this very big, large class of fish. The order that they're in is another fun one. Pleuronectiformes. Pleuronectiformes. Basically the flat fishes. So this is your flounders, halibuts, soles, places, dabs, turbots, whiffs, and so on. Fish that lay horizontally and are asymmetrical, which is unusual. Asymmetry in nature is unusual. Yes. Very unusual. <laughs> The family is Paralichthidae. I think I said that right. Paralichthidae. And these are sand flounders. And the genus and species is Scytharicthus, Scytharicthus sordus. Sordus. Whatever. It's the Pacific sand. <laughs> I'm not going to fight with words today. Taxonomists were a 
very special sort of people when they first started making all these words. Well, I mean, and that's kind of the struggle, too. It's one of the reasons why, like, like we, we like scientific terms and names because they're universal. What you call a, the scientific name of a species does not change between countries in almost all instances, but common names do. So to make sure that everybody's on the same page talking about something, you use a scientific name. The problem is the scientific names can be so difficult to say that when you use it in education, you don't like to use it because regular people don't want to struggle like this with the Greek and Latin terms and whatnot. So common names are easier. So most people will find it easier to say and remember Pacific Sandab versus its scientific name. So it's one of those obstacles that science has with SciComm and communicating with people is the whole scientific naming system and its masochism <laughs> and the unnecessary like complexity of it is a really big hurdle in some people's accessibility in science and it's something that needs to be worked on for sure i certainly hate saying all these words so the size of this fish its average size is between about 13 to 41 centimeters in most cases from what i read they tend to be usually just under 25 centimeters so this means that they're ranging between five and six inches with an average just under 10 inches. And the average weight seemed to be kind of uh, debatable, but on average, uh, it was a weight of upwards of 4.5 grams or two pounds. So not a very big or heavy fish at all. Its appearance is literally that of a fish on its side. They are broad horizontally and very thin vertically. The species is left-sided, so that means that the right side of the body lays flat against the sand, while the left side faces upwards. Most flat fishes are right-sided, so the sand dabs are a little bit unusual in that they are left-sided. Oh, that's interesting, that there's a, um, a preference for species on one side or another. Happens in some snails, too. There are some snail species where the... the the twist of their shell goes to the right or left, and that's one of the ways that you identify certain snails is whether they're right or left-sided. These fish literally fell down one day and said, help, I actually, no, I don't want to get up. <laughs> the opposite of all those uh, Life Alert commercials. Yeah, I've fallen and I don't want to get up. <laughs> so they have a dorsal or top fin that stretches nearly the full length of their body, and a ventral or bottom fin that stretches from their uh, caudal or tail fin to their pectoral fin. I'm sorry, there are a lot of fins on these fishes. They are speckled with a mixture of irregular spots that have no pattern or uniformity. They can also change color to camouflage in different environments. The top side of their body, including their spots, can be any number of different colors, including red, orange, yellow, greens, brown, black, and white. Their main skin color often differs from their spots in some cases, and their spots are more often more than one color as well. So they're never typically a solid color because this would not blend in well with the very sandy substrate. So if you Google pictures of sand dabs, you'll see a fish that usually has anywhere from two to five different colors speckled across its body. The underside is usually somewhere between a light brown and a white color, so this also gives them counter shade camouflage as well. And they are slightly sexy dimorph 
sexy dimorphic. <laughs> Man, I wish I was sexy dimorphic. <laughs> they are slightly sexually dimorphic in that females tend to be larger than the males. So I wanted to ask a question. You said that they have counter shading. Mm -hmm. So these are fish that... <laughs> Tiger Jack, stop rubbing on that box. What were you trying to say about their countershading? So you said that they're countershaded, but they are fish that literally lay on one side. So do they actually swim that high above the floor of the ocean? It's funny you ask that. We're going to answer that in the diets. Oh. <laughs> Fun fact. So the range is from the Bering Sea in Alaska all the way down to Baja, California, and Mexico. Their habitat is, of course, the sandy seafloor. The range, they range between about 9 meters to 570 meters or 30 to 1,800 feet deep. And they are usually found between 37 and 91 meters, which is 120 to 300 feet. Typically, when they are juveniles is when they're in much shallower depths. In fact, they're sometimes even found in tide pools. Their diet is carnivorous, and they are very opportunistic, basically, in a lot of cases, if they see it and it fits in their mouth, they'll eat it. They tend to eat small fishes, crustaceans, worms, cephalopods, and the eggs of other animals. And even though it's considered a benthic or bottom-dwelling species, adult sand dabs frequently forage in pelagic zones, which would mean above the floor of the sea. So they actually swim up into higher parts of the water column to feed in a lot of cases. Now, they do sometimes feed benthically. The worms that they eat are are benthic worms, as are most worms in the ocean, honestly. But it seems like based on their diet, they... <laughs> Jagger Jack's really into that box tonight. Uh, based on the adult's diet, they frequently eat pelagic fishes and crustaceans. So pelagic crustaceans are often things like um, amph uh, not amphipods, that's a different animal, um, copepods. Or like little shrimps, like the tuna shrimps, the red ones we found on the beach that one time. Mm -hmm. You have that picture of that one that you were staring at. Yeah. Yeah. Those it was guys. trying to offer me a shell. Oh, right. It was negotiating its freedom with you. So uh, you might discuss this later, um, either that or I had a big blackout during the beginning of this. Um, but is there a uh, evolutionary advantage to having both of your eyes on one side of your body and none on the other side to not be able to see... Well, Predators. As, exactly. So as a benthic species, when they're laying flat on the ground, being uh, flat, of course, is best for when you're on the sandy seafloor, as we proved with the Pacific sand dollar, because it's a squished sea urchin rather than a round one. It's beneficial if you're going to hang out on the seafloor to be flat. But if your eyes on each side, that means you've got an eye literally buried in the sand. So and this will be described a little bit later, their eyes actually migrate. So they're born like a normal fish, but their eye actually migrates throughout their life. And then the two eyes on top can then... <laughs> that cardboard box, man, it's just, it's a hot item. Um, they're born with two eyes on top. No, they're, yeah, born, they're born with born eyes on each side. side. <laughs> the eye migrates, and then they can more easily see things. So... These guys basically have to be, see what they're going to eat. They're visual hunters. So whenever they're hiding in the sand, their eyes are usually above the sand when they're hiding. And the moment they see something edible, they will sometimes pop out of the sand to catch it. 
And same goes for when they're swimming up and foraging in the upper parts of the water column. They're using those eyes. They're looking forward at their prey to eat. Yeah, I was just imagining that if, obviously, as you said, it's most beneficial to have the two eyes on one side when you're at the seafloor. But when you are swimming up higher, obviously the counter shading is protecting you, but you have a big blind spot since you now cannot see what's underneath you unless you're going down. It is a bit of a risk, but you have to imagine their their vision's kind of the same as ours. They have two forward-facing eyes. Actually, they may... I shouldn't say they, that they have the same vision. I actually have a feeling they might have a slightly wider field of vision. Couldn't find any papers on their visual acuity, but I do imagine based on their big bulbous eyes protruding out of the top of their head, they might actually have a slightly wider field of vision than us. Now, that does mean that they do put themselves at risk, and they are eaten by some things when they're doing this. Don't get me wrong. It isn't without risk, but, I mean, this is the life they've chosen. This is what they've adapted for. All right. So moving into reproduction, these are oviparous, which means egg-laying animals. From what I was able to find, females lay eggs anywhere from about 810 to 17,400 eggs, and the average in all of that is about 6,350 eggs released per spawn in the water column. All right, I have to ask, which grad student is going and counting these eggs? (laughs) So it's probably an estimate with a lot of these things when they do this what they'll do is they'll take and measure one egg and then when if you know they'll they'll capture females from the from the wild put them in their own tanks and when they spawn they'll gather the eggs and weigh them and based on the weight that they know one egg weighs they'll divide the weight and estimate how many eggs are there so it's not some poor grad student sit there and pulling out one individual egg at a time and counting it it is them taking out an egg mass and weighing that egg mass against the weight of one or maybe sometimes like 10 eggs. Good job. Be smart about these things. (laughs) Work smarter, not harder. Yeah. So thousands of eggs per spawn typically in the water column, and then it will mix with male gametes in the water column. And they are actually very likely to spawn multiple times during their breeding season, which is between July and September. When the larval fishes are born, like I said, they look like typical fish fry and they actually have their eyes on each side of the body. As they develop, their eyes will begin to migrate. For the Pacific sand dab, eye migration begins around 16 to 25 millimeters or 0.6 to 1 inches in length. And it takes up to five months typically for this eye migration to be completed. For right-sided flat fishes, their left eye travels to the right side of the body. But for these that are left-sided flatfishes, that means that their right eye is traveling to the left side of the body. The lifespan of these sand dabs is an average of nine years, but they've been known to live upwards of 13. Before we move into the values, did you have any questions about their natural history, Barry? I was just thinking when you were saying that it takes five months for the eye to move from one side of the body to the other, that that would be the weirdest vision correction surgery i can imagine a human having (laughs) is that we will slowly correct your vision over the course of say a year it's kind of like braces you know how braces just like slowly move your teeth around imagine like an eye brace that just like slowly moves your eyeball but in this case your body makes the brace and moves it i don't know i don't have a good analogy for this i don't know this would be really a bad way to go about lasik is all i can say (laughs) world's strangest LASIK. Well, LASIK is corrective vision. 
right. not like the phys- physical eye. Yeah, this isn't really. There's not really a human equivalent. I was just trying to use LASIK. Well, yeah, because as, humans don't move their eyeballs around. Right. But I'm just, over the course of five months, this fish's way of perceiving its environment is changing every day or every week to some degree, and it has to adjust the entire time to how it is seeing the world or its world. Um, I can only imagine that's... I mean, I'm sure it's built in uh to fish like this that even if they haven't experienced it before they're used to it but i'm just trying to think from a human perspective (laughs) having that kind of adjustment over the course of five months would be really weird undoubtedly for the sand dab it's not very strange they are adapted for it it's you know i'm sure they're not consciously thinking man this is a really weird weird like puberty or something um but from a human's perspective yeah this would be a really strange life stage now honey when you hit 13 your right eye is going to move across your nose (laughs) and sit next to your left eye don't worry it's completely natural (laughs) all right so for their environmental value while the pacific sand dabs are predators to other animals they are actually more important as a prey species in particular for seabirds other fishes which include sharks and rays humboldt squid and marine mammals and among the marine mammals, it's pinnipeds that usually feed on them. The young sand dabs, which live closer to the shore in shallower depths, are more susceptible to predation from fish like salmon, Pacific hake, and rockfish, and of course the seabirds. Are these real rockfish or are these Maryland rockfish? <laughs> these are the real. So, real rockfish live in California. Rockfish in Maryland are just striped bass. Yeah, take that, Maryland. This is why common names are a problem. So certain diving seabirds like the great cormorant... Let's try this again. Certain diving seabirds like the great cormorant are known for their ability to hunt flatfishes despite the flatfish's ability to camouflage. So flatfishes are listed specifically as as part of the great cormorant's diet, and there have even been scientific publications that studied the impact and relationship between great cormorants and flatfishes. Sharks and rays can also detect flatfishes like sand dabs despite their camouflage thanks to a special adaptation known as the ampullae of Lorenzini, which allows them to sense the minute minute, minute <laughs> uh, electrical currents produced by the muscles and nerves of other animals. On the Monterey Bay seafloor, stingrays, skates, guitarfish, electric rays, angelfish, and several types of hound sharks are well adapted for hunting animals that hide in the sandy seafloor. I'm throwing in this belated addendum. I realized as I was listening to this recording, I said angelfish. What I meant to say was angel sharks. Angel sharks are adapted for eating species on the sandy seafloor. I've never heard of hound sharks. So hound sharks is is like a group name and there's specific ones within it. So one hound shark you might be familiar with that we saw pretty often in Monterey were leopard sharks. But then there's also ones like soup fin sharks, which actually the Monterey Bay Aquarium used to have, but no longer currently do. I got to say, that's a horrible common name. You're setting yourself up for failure. It actually is a really terrible common name. But but those are both types of, uh, those are both sharks found in in the hound sharks. I can't remember if it's a, I think it's a family. I can't quite recall. It's not about you, hound sharks. We're moving on. (laughs) 
Moving into social value, flatfishes in general are kept in private and public aquariums, though Pacific sand dabs are not very common. They are displayed in some North American Pacific Coast aquariums. Uh, we saw our first Pacific sand dabs at the Monterey Bay Aquarium. I don't know if you remember the exhibit. So when you walk into the Monterey Bay habitats, they had actually two exhibits that really helped to display flatfishes. The first one was flat and you would see it and one had lighter colored sand and one had darker color sand and the fish could actually go between it and they would change color when they switch sides. They were very small too. They were only like this big, but that was one display they had. And then right next to that one was a much bigger tank and it had soles, halibut, sand dabs, all kinds of things in it. Those weren't the only two displays that had flatfish, but those were the two that exhibited flatfish as like the main species. And I thought the one that exhibited their ability to change color was really cool. How they specifically had lighter colored sand on one side and darker sand on the other side, just to show how they change colors as they moved back and forth. So do they have chromatophores? Yeah, chromatophore is a pretty common name for cells that allow animals to change colors. So while a lot of people might associate chromatophores with cephalopods like octopuses, um, chromatophore is a common name for any cell that seems to allow animals to change color. It's like a pigmented cell, basically. Now, not all animals that change colors have chromatophores. So the episode we talked about uh, last week with Megan in the broadnose seven gill, she talks about how the broadnose seven gill changes color. But as far as we know, they don't have chromatophores. So it's a different mechanism that allows it to change color or appear to change color. Got it. So is uh, obviously there's a limit to how much they can change their color. Yeah. Um, I presume that that probably hasn't been tested to a high well, degree with sand dabs. Uh, well, well, they are severely limited. And so I listed some of the colors that they could potentially be in the beginning. So they're, they can do like, even though they can do red, it's not like it's a variety of reds. It's usually like a rusty red. The orange isn't a lot of different kinds of oranges. It's usually a more drab orange. Uh, the yellow and green are kind of like olive-ish in color. So it's going to be these uh, duller, sometimes closer to the brown spectrum colors that you're more likely to find in a sandy environment, you're not going to find blues or purples, which are not known colors in these animals. Um, and in, in most cases, most of the sand dabs that I have seen were browns, whites, and blacks. So I've actually, as far as I know, I've never seen a sand dab, minus a few pictures on the internet. I've never seen a live sand dab feature red, orange, or yellow yet, or green. So lots of neutral colors in most cases, because that's what the sandy seafloor is. Um, and what colors they do have aren't super bright, super vibrant, or super saturated. As far as I know. As far as I read, I should say. Aside from the Monterey Bay Aquarium, chances are other aquariums like the Aquarium of the Bay, the Aquarium of the Pacific, Oregon Coast Aquarium, and others likely display the Pacific sand dab as well. They are also valued by recreational fishers because many flatfish are known for their light, mild, and flaky meat. And sand dab meat is also considered a bit sweet and comparable to some trout species. It's also light in calories while high in protein, and it is not prone to the same issues of toxicity such as mercury that other targeted fish species have issues with. 
So all of these characteristics combined make sand dabs a very desirable, desirable catch, which leads to their economic value. So hopping into that economic value, flatfish fisheries are a large part of the West Coast commercial and non-commercial fisheries. While Pacific sand dabs are not usually a targeted species, since much larger species like the California halibut are going to have a lot more meat to sell, they are still uh, sold if they're caught as bycatch, and usually they're sold under different common names like a sole. Sole like S-O-L-E and not like a sole in your body. Right, like the sole of your shoe. Yeah. Mm. And... Which is where you would be likely to find one of these if you were walking along the ocean floor because they are benthic. Very warm. dwelling. Why are you walking along the ocean floor with shoes on? I mean, there are rocks down there. <laughs> the sand dab as a prey species is a food source for many different piscivorous fishes or fish eating fishes throughout its life cycle including commercially valuable ones like different types of salmon, hake, rockfish, sablefish, lingcod, lingcod, flounder, and halibut. Ecosystem models have proven that overfishing smaller fishes that larger fishes rely on can lead to fishery declines for those larger species. And along the North American West Coast, sand dabs are an abundance fish species, fish species, and a common food source for a lot of these piscivorous fish. This makes sustainably managing the sand dab populations important so that it does not negatively impact these other fisheries. So wait, flounder. Flounder's a flatfish, right? Yes. Not Little Mermaid's flounder, but actual flounder or flatfish. Right, right. So a flounder has both of its eyes on the same side, too. Yes. And it eats sand dabs yes flounder and halibut both of which are flat fishes eat sand dabs what the he double hockey sticks <laughs> do they not look out for their own i mean like it's hard enough like being a kid wearing glasses on the playground and getting made fun of but if all those other kids are also kids that have glasses and they're making fun of you for wearing glasses i mean obviously they're not eating you because <laughs> um, that would be a very weird playground experience. But still, it's like... Well, I mean, in the ocean, the playground is a place where kids go and eat other kids. Man, <laughs> the ocean is so screwed up. <laughs> I mean, this is really common. There are plenty of examples of snails eating snails, octopuses eating other cephalopods. I mean, in, in this, fish eating fish, sharks eat sharks. I mean, this is literally like a dog-eat-dog -dog world, like... Animals okay. don't care. I, they will even eat the same species. Some animals are cannibals of their own species. It happens. Okay, if I'm walking down the street and I look in a yard and I see a dog eating its own poop, I'm going to go, ooh, disgusting. If I look into a yard and I see a dog eating another dog, I'm going to be like, <laughs> what is going on? And Call also, animal control. maybe I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know whether I'm taping it, whether I'm like yelling for the owner to come out whether i'm trying to separate them how far is the other dog into the first dog's mouth is it mostly gone <laughs> well you know what's funny is we have that attitude about animals on land but i've seen recordings on the internet of people recording animal predation and in some cases it's animals that are closely related to each other like i've seen dive videos of 
a large bass eating a smaller species of bass. I mean, that's just so how much, the ocean. How much bigger is a flounder or a halibut than a sand dab? So if you recall back at the beginning, on average, these guys don't get too big. Most of them are going to be on average under 25 centimeters or under 10 inches. Uh, some of these bigger species like the California halibut, if I remember their size correctly, uh, these guys are getting like closer to like two feet long. Now, it, we're not saying at what stage they're necessarily always eating them at. In some cases, it could be smaller males or juveniles, um, but it's obvious that these are significantly larger fish, in some cases upwards of twice as big as the average sand dab that are eating them. So, I mean, it's not, even though they're relatives, the Pacific sand dab is on the smaller side of flatfishes and it's being consumed by larger flatfishes. I guess that's fair. So if a human's like twice as big as another human, it's fair if they eat them. Well, I mean, I think that we would be upset if we saw people eating babies. Um, that's that's very, very true. But uh, this yeah. is becoming less and less of a kid friendly podcast right now. Human caviar. Oh, all right. We're moving on from that. That's as far as that's going. <laughs> all right. So moving on from that disturbing topic, let's go into the conservation. While the Pacific sand dab hasn't received any formal evaluation, the species is considered abundant throughout its range, and its fishery is currently sustainably managed, so the threat of overfishing is not yet a concern. However, the most common way to catch flatfishes is bottom trawling, which has been covered in the other episodes throughout this month. While the sandy seafloor is one of the most resilient habitats that can recover best from bottom trawling, it can still damage the seafloor. In most cases, it's damaging or killing species such as the uh, red octopus that we mentioned, the Pacific sand dollar, and sometimes even the broad-nosed seven-gill shark. Although of the three, the sand dollar is the most vulnerable to damage from this, especially as animals that can't move quickly and that rest specifically in the sand throughout almost their entire lives. So the Pacific sand dab is caught via bottom trawling, and that is considered sustainable because the sandy seafloor is less fragile than, let's say, a reef. But buying from smaller fisheries or even just catching your own with a fishing rod are really the most sustainable choices for reducing our impact on the sandy seafloor. So there are a lot of species that I haven't mentioned, but that do exist in this uh, in this habitat. So things like gorgonians, sea pens, tube worm or tube anemones and tube worms really. There are lots of different species that anchor themselves into the sandy seafloor and cannot run away when a bottom trawl comes along. And while the species may not necessarily be killed, they can be damaged and harmed by this bottom trawling. In general, it's not considered a big deal when they're evaluated unfortunately. But if you look at the Monterey Bay Seafood Watch, even though it lists Pacific sand dabs as sustainable, if you look at their score, they specifically have low scores because of the damage that bottom trawling does and for the potential for bycatch, which means they're catching unintended species because it's very indiscriminate in how it captures prey. You can catch a lot of bycatch, which means non-targeted animals, and some of them aren't usable. So while the sand dab is in a way bycatch because it's usually not the target species, 
it's still sellable. So it's fine. But if they catch something that they don't want to eat or that they don't think can be sold on the market, that animal is often discarded. In most cases, it does not survive the process of being caught. So best case scenario is to always avoid animals that have to be caught via bottom trawling because that is one of the most damaging forms of fishing that we have, especially when it comes to habitats. Yeah, I kind of think about it like a Magic the Gathering burn deck. So, <laughs> I mean, if you're playing a burn deck and you're burning your own cards, sure, you're getting to the cards you need faster, but you're just, like, laying a whole bunch of other things to waste and they don't get used. So, um, yeah, I don't know. That's That might be a horrible example. No, I mean, it's 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 not... In some ways, it's not untrue, but the key here is, is that... You know, you're talking about in a burn deck, the issue is burning your own cards, which are usable cards. In this case, the things that are getting burned aren't necessarily usable. It's these organisms that live along the seafloor that aren't edible or that aren't worth catching that are getting damaged. So it's 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 more of, you know, it, it's, it's these unintended victims, basically, these things that aren't that you're not trying to necessarily damage or harm but because of how the technique is done it's gonna i mean no matter how you do it it's harmful to somebody and it's usually not the intended species because at the end of the day it's not a big deal if it kills a halibut you're trying to catch the halibut so if a halibut doesn't survive bottom trawling and you catch it and it dies in the net i mean that was the point you're trying to catch the halibut for eating in most cases um, no big deal. But those gorgonians, those sea pens, the tubin enemies. Those specific sand dollars, you're not going to get to play those on your next turn. You're not going to be able to tap any of those. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> you're really stuck on this Magic the Gathering. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it, re it really does harm a lot of animals that are beneficial to this very difficult to live in environment the sandy seafloor isn't an easy place to live you have to be very specially adapted to live on the sandy seafloor it's a very difficult place to live it's not unlike a desert you know there's very limited resources in the sandy seafloor so to be able to adapt and live there you do have to be a pretty sturdy animal but it also makes you fragile in ways too so, because you can't really just go somewhere else and for a lot of species, like this is the only place where they can live. A Pacific sand dollar can't live on a shale reef. It can't live in the rocky reef. It can't live in the, in the tide pools. It's not going to move to the deep sea. They specifically live on the continental shelf in these sandy habitats. This is their only habitat. They can't go anywhere else. So... If we want those animals to be safe, we have to keep that habitat safe. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Before we go any further, could you explain why they're called sand dabs? I honestly don't know, but it has absolutely nothing to do with actual dabbing. I will tell you that. I don't know why they're called sand dabs, if I'm being honest. I don't know where most... I don't know why some are called halibuts. I don't know why some are called turbots. We kind of speculated about the soul. I don't know why some are called flounders. I don't know where any of these common names came from, any of these animals, except for the name 
flatfish, which is pretty self-explanatory. If you came up with the name Sandab, please write The Nagging Naturalist. <laughs> oh, yeah, my email will be at the end. Uh, I could, um, I don't know if I could actually Google it. It may be one of those things where it's like, it's been going on so long, some people have just accepted the name and nobody cares about the etymology of it. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> that's a wrap for this episode about the Pacific Sand Dab and a wrap for the Sandy Seafloor Habitat this month. Thank you all so much for listening. For this episode, I cite information from the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, the California Sea Grant, Biodiversity of the Central Coast, and a 2013 NOAA Fishery Stock assess Assessment of the Pacific Sand Dab. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to my email, which is thenaturalist at thenaggingnaturalist.com. And feel free to drop me a line if you know why the sand dab is called a sand dab. And you can also check out my website, thenaggingnaturalist.com. On social media, you can find The Nagging Naturalist on Facebook and Instagram, as well as on Twitter under the handle at nag underscore naturalist. You can also leave me a review on Apple Podcasts and podchaser.com to help support the podcast. If you love learning about wildlife and don't want to wait for another episode, check out some of these other really awesome wildlife podcasts. All Creatures Podcast, CritterCast, The Wildlife, Just the Zoo of Us, Animals to the Max, Varmints, The Amazing Wildlife Podcast, The Casual Birder, What Are You Podcast, The Songbirding Podcast, The Cicada Lounge, Life, Death, and Taxonomy, The Strange Animals Podcast, and The Strange Animals Podcast, which are all safe for work. There's also Keeper Chat, which is a great podcast, too though it's definitely not safe for work. Also, here are some really great podcasts you can check out that discuss science or sciences in general and can also have overlap with wildlife. Petri Dish, Planthropology, Bald Scientist, Dear Grad Student, Better Than Human, Curiosity Cake, Mad Scientist, What Are You Gonna Do With That Podcast, Papa PhD, Breaking Math, Curiosity Killed the Rat, That's What I Call Science, and the Scientist Podcast, and that's Scientist with two T's at the end. There's also a new podcast on the block called More Than Just a Scientist. For those of you that listened in to my September takeovers, I had Jasmine Graham of MISS, which is Minorities in Shark Science, do a takeover. She has begun a podcast with another shark scientist, Triana, and they are doing this podcast more than just a scientist, where they do talk about their roles in shark sciences, but they also just discuss their lives outside of that and talk more broadly about science and also their experiences as minority women in science. So be sure to check out their podcast. It's really awesome. As of this recording, they've now released three episodes, although I haven't had a chance to listen to the third yet, but the first two were wonderful. Of all the podcasts I mentioned in this category, some of them are and aren't safe for work, so be sure to double-check if that's of concern. I'm also on a non-wildlife podcast called The Legend of Portalcast, which discusses the world of Avatar The Last Airbender and The Legend of Korra. Thank y'all again, and I will be back next month with a new species and a whole new habitat to discuss. You want to say bye, Dave? I was never here. That's a lie. Everybody knows it. Quit lying to my listeners.
You say you say bye. Bye. <laughs>